Hey everybody, welcome to Behind the Books, a podcast for writers by writers. I'm Larissa. And I'm LJ. This week we're delving into our academic side of life, a college final project for Larissa. That's right, and it's time to finally talk about book-to-film adaptations. Today we're going to be talking about the historical context of the original book, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the differences between it and the 2021 A24 movie, and how those differences affect the original message of the story. Can it really be called an adaptation? You can follow us on Instagram at larissagalt.author and at lj underscore writes with two s's. Episodes may contain spoilers for The Green Knight movie and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I can't remember if the movie is called The Green Knight or Sir Gawain. What is it? Um, it's The Green Knight. I'm pretty sure. It is? Yes. Okay. <laughs> because I know that they took some part of the book title out of the movie title. And I just get flipped around. So anyway, guys, we mentioned a few weeks ago that this episode was coming. So here it is. For a class of mine this semester, uh, a survey class for British literature, we read one of my favorite medieval pieces. Um, It's an epic poem called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It was written in the 14th century, but we'll get more into that later. Basically, what anyone who's listening to this needs to know is that my opinions and anything said on this episode is just like a spoken version of a written analysis paper. I do all the script writing on this podcast anyway, but I put in all the preparation work for this episode because this is a you know graded assignment, obviously. And I also had to use an outside source, which makes it a little bit different than our regular song and dance here, which is you know all about opinions. Uh, so without further ado, let's talk about adaptations. So excited. Woo! Woo woo! We have we have some pretty controversial adaptations out there in the regular book sphere, I feel like. Oh yeah. Like. I mean, everybody always has an opinion on, the movie was great, but the book sucked, or the book was great and the movie sucked. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. One, like, pretty controversial, I think, um, adaptation is Pride and Prejudice, because the 1995 one is super popular, and so is the 2001, 2005, I think, maybe is the yeah, one oh, with Kira Knightley. Mm-hmm. And so there's, like, a huge debate on... Which one is better for what reasons? <laughs> oh, five. All the way. Oh, five. <laughs> I haven't seen either of them, so I can't uh, give an opinion. I don't even like romance, and I love that movie, so you should watch it. I know. That's what everybody tells me, that mm-hmm. I'd like really, really be into it. Honestly, I'm not into Austin-era literature very much, so oh, okay. I haven't really got into that. No. I do own this really pretty copy of Emma, but I haven't read it yet. So. Gotcha. Guys, this is like one of the longest scripts we've ever had. <laughs> it's so long. <laughs> I opened up the document. I was like, oh, hello. <laughs> it's six pages. But hey, you know, that's okay. It is what it is. Yeah. Besides the trope episode, I think this is the longest one. So, oh, absolutely. Um, All right, Larissa, hit me. That historical context. Give me the plot points. Historical context. Or so you know both of them. I just watched the I do. So I don't, I've never read any of this, and that was the whole point of this. So hit me with those basic plot points, or the real ones. And listen, we've all seen an adaptation that goes so far away from the book that it's, like, painful to watch. This is not necessarily one of those, but it teeters on that territory. It teeters. So the, like, following three minutes that I'm going to talk for (laughs) straight, um will probably shock you a little bit maybe a few things that will shock you 
so let's see. Let's get down to it. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight was written around the same time as Chaucer, which I believe is 13th century, but it takes place in the 6th century. Uh, King Arthurian... <laughs> King Arthurian... King Arthur! <laughs> Arthurian period. Uh, it's an epic poem about the nephew of King Arthur, which is basically a really long poetic narrative. That's what an epic poem is. Uh, Gawain is his nephew's name. And in the movie, they call him Gawain. In some of the audiobooks, he's called Gawain... I say Gawain because that's the first time I heard his name pronounced, and so that's how I like to say it. Um, so Gawain hasn't had the chance to prove himself yet. This is where we're entering in. He's an adult, but he's not, like, a fully-fledged knight, right? Somebody called the Green Knight, haha, you know, obviously, shows up to their court at Christmas time, and as you might suspect, he's entirely green. His clothes, hair, skin, eyes, his horse, like, mane and tail, like, everything is green, which is not normal. <laughs> Uh, he challenges anyone in the court to a game, basically. They get to deal him a blow with his own weapon, uh, which is an axe, and they get to keep the weapon. They get to keep the axe. As long as, in one year, he gets to return the blow in the exact same manner, right? So it's a little tricky game here. No one steps up, so he kind of antagonizes them, and Arthur, like, steps in to do it himself, and Gawain steps in and goes, no, 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 I'm not really one of the important knights here, so let me do it. Right? None of your great warriors will be injured, and I'm humble enough to take this, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Let, let me do it. Let me impress, you know, Queen Guinevere, who's, like, the pinnacle of all of this stuff, right? Let me do that for you. And so Arthur's like, okay, fine. Well, <laughs> fun. Gawain chops off the Green Knight's head. Everybody thinks it's over. You know, it's done. Except for the fact that the knight picks up his head, gets on his horse, and the head starts talking again. Which gives, you know, he gives Gawain some, like, vague directions on where to find him next year. Right, so when the time comes, 360-ish, probably days later, uh, Gawain leaves. He goes on this grand adventure. He fights ogres and monsters and, you know, braves a bunch of cold nights in the woods. Until, finally, he prays to ask for somewhere to take Christmas Mass. Um, which we'll end up talking about a little bit later. Uh, then he sees a castle, goes in to find shelter, and the lord of the castle, his name is Bertilak, by the way, He's never given a name in the movie, which is strange. But anyway, his name is Bertilak. Um, Bertilak welcomes him in. There's also this lady of the castle, Lady Bertilak, and some ugly old woman that becomes important later. Uh, Bertilak tells Gawain that he knows where the Green Chapel is, where he'll find the knight. That's where the knight lives. So Gawain can stay there and enjoy, you know, the Christmas festivities, church services and stuff, and then just leave in a few days to make it there in time. Uh, Gawain accepts. You know, he's like, all right, dude. And Bertilak offers him a deal during his day. So here's another game that Gawain has to partake in. For the next three days, while Bertilak is out hunting, whatever he brings back, he'll give to Gawain, if Gawain gives Bertilak whatever he's gotten that day in the castle. And it's a bit of a strange deal because, like, wouldn't whatever is in the castle already belong to Bertilak? But Bertilak says he might be surprised, so Gawain's like, all right, I agree, again. First day comes, Bertilak goes out hunting, brings back a deer. Right, which is a really nice animal with plenty of meat on it to feed everyone. It's a symbol. Uh, deer in the medieval era were usually referred to as a king's animal. Some kings had restrictions on hunting them. If you've ever seen the Disney Robin Hood, the animated Disney Robin Hood, when people got in trouble for killing the deer, that's where that comes from. So Gawain was visited by Lady Bertilak that day in the castle. So you have, you know, Bertilak is out hunting, all of this stuff. Gawain's in the castle. He gets visited. In his bed, by the way, before the castle is really vague, and she's fun and playful and talks with Gawain. And he has to play this delicate game of not totally denying her flirting, but he can't just, like, totally shut her down because that would insult her. 
you know, that would insult his host and he could get kicked out and he wouldn't be able to find the Green Knight and hold up his end of the bargain. So he kind of just has to wait it out and play nice. So it's this interesting kind of dynamic. So when Bertolac comes back that day, he presents the deer to Gawain and Gawain gives him what he had received, which was a kiss on the cheek. Now, second day comes, song and dance continues, except this time Bertolac goes hard to fight and kill this nasty boar. There's like three or four pages of description about him killing this boar, which is awesome. Everyone has a boar for dinner, right? Gawain still gets a kiss from Lady Bertolac, so he passes it on. Now, the boar is like less meat, tougher, but it's still significant because it was so hard to catch. You know, you have different animals that and the passing of time that kind of indicate the progression of characters and plot and stuff. Third day, though, something changes. Bertolac goes out hunting, and all he can get is a fox, which, as we all know, is the poster child animal for trickery and deception. Guess what Gawain gets? A kiss from Lady Bertolac and a token for him to remember her by. He tried to deny it, but she keeps bartering, you know, you know, we should take it, you know, all this stuff, until he accepts the gift. And here's why he accepts. It's a green sash belt thingamajig, that would ensure he would be protected from harm. She told him it was magic. She told him it would protect him from anything that came against him. And he knows he is about to go meet the guy who's going to chop off his head. So he's like, you know what? I think I'll take it. I think I'll say yes. But when Bartolak comes and gives him the fox and Gawain gives him the last kiss, he doesn't give him the sash, right? Which goes against their deal. So moving on, Gawain goes to find the Green Knight Bertolac sends a servant with him to show him the way. At the last point where the servant is going to head back, he basically tells Gawain, hey, no one who goes any further has ever come back alive, so I'm going to leave. I'm going to get out of here. And if you don't go down there, I'm not going to know because I'm not going to be there, and therefore I can't tell anyone, basically. So I'll tell everyone I saw you go down there, uh, which basically gives Gawain an out, right? Like, he could just turn around and go home and save his life, but he doesn't. He decides to go anyway, and when he's faced with the Green Knight and they get down to business, um, Gawain flinches, you know, moves away from the oncoming blow, not once, but twice, okay? And we'll get into the tenets of knighthood, basically, a little bit later, but that's not really normal. You know, you gotta be courageous, you gotta, you signed up for this, Gawain, you should be, you know, ready for the axe to come down on your head. Him and the Green Knight exchange some words. Gawain assures him he's ready again. And then when the axe actually comes down on his neck, it only nicks him because he's wearing the sash. It can't hurt him. It only like just draws blood. Gawain gets defensive. He leaps up, tells the Green Knight he's completed the deal. He can be free now. You know, you can't try again. The Knight agrees. He's like, dude, calm down, chill out. And that's when he reveals something that Lonnie does not know yet. Mm -hmm. And I'm about to say it because they never reveal this in the movie. Not only do they not give Bertolac a name in the movie, right? You didn't you didn't know that name nope. until I until I told you who it was. Nope. There are a few things in the movie that they kind of hint at. The mother's involvement and the old woman at the castle, I'm sure you saw connections. Mm-hmm. But what they didn't end up revealing, what happens in the books, is that the Green Knight reveals to him that he is Bertolac. Ooh. And the old woman in the castle um, is actually Morgan Le Fay, who is this, like, enchantress, like, wizard thing, you know, woman. She's the half-sister of Arthur, actually. Uh-huh. And it's kind of sort of implied that she's Gawain's mom. In the movie, it's very clear that that's Gawain's mother. That's what I thought. But she's in disguise. Like, she's magic disguise. Uh, in the movie, how they do that is really interesting. We'll talk a bit about that. But Bertolac, the Green Knight slash Bertolac reveals that Morgan Le Fay basically put a spell on him, gave him magic 
assistants to look like this knight, right? The purpose of the Green Knight, get this, the purpose of the Green Knight going into King Arthur's court was to just scare Queen Guinevere to death. <laughs> what? That's the reason. That's silly. That's the reason. Yeah. So they weren't sure who was going to, like, take the bait. They weren't sure who was going to chop off the Green Knight's head mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, in the movie, it's pretty clear that his mother puts him in that position, so he will be the one to do it. Yeah. But in the book, it's, like, so wide open, and Morgan Le Fay is, like, super disconnected from Gawain. And so that whole thing is revealed, and Gawain's like, well, okay, um, bye. <laughs> I'm gonna head out now, because <laughs> I completed my end of the bargain and all this stuff. And so he takes the journey back. You know, this is post-Christmas, by the way. And he goes back to the King Arthur's court. And he tells everybody the entire story. Like, the whole thing. And he keeps the sash around him as this, like, symbol of, you know, I just messed up severely. Like, I used magic and trickery to get away with death, right? To cheat what I should have been dealt, which was death. And, you know, I'm kind of, like, super beat up about this, guys. Like, this is the worst. You know, he's really humiliated. He's like, I don't know if I can ever face everybody again with honor. And everyone else is like, no, you did the right thing. You did all the right things. And you, you know, you stood up to him. And if you had died, we wouldn't have ever known that this magical person was in our midst. And, you know, Morgan Le Fay was off casting spells against lords' castles and stuff. And so then everybody decides to wear their own green sash in solidarity, basically, of Gawain. And then everyone's like, yay! happily ever after and we're done and that's how the book ends and it's this great like epic story this heroic story and um in old english and i read the translated version because why not because i don't know old english yeah i think the old english version would be a little difficult but that seems very fun that's very exciting yeah i had like a side by side like um what is it called the facing translation And so I had the Old English on the left pages and the Modern English on the right, which was awesome. Yeah, no, I like that. That definitely is different than, not completely different, but it's a little different than what I saw or, like, knew from from the movie. So it was, that was close enough. I do like that ending. That was interesting. I guess they just, like, I think I did pick up the fact that his mob was Morgan uh, Le Fay. Yeah. Well, or at least if not her, because I didn't necessarily know her name, but like magic-y type of stuff, because she did like a whole bunch of magic-y stuff in the beginning. I was like, oh, well, (laughs) that's a little funky. But uh, I like that. That's fun. I know there's, it's old English story, so there's got to be some like thematic and like higher meaning. So, you know, I'm excited to hear about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's this sequence in the movie before the Green Knight shows up with Gawain's mom and a bunch of other ladies in this, like, dark, you know, like, space. And I think they've got some fire going. And they've, they're, have they like, saying spells and they're, like, chanting and things like that. So you kind of see where that comes from. But while she's doing that, she puts this thing over her eyes. And so the old woman that shows up in the castle also has that thing over her eyes. It's not the same, like, fabric, whatever, but it's the same general feel, you know, concept. So that was pretty easy. I I obviously knew what... You know, that the two women were the same. But um, I was like, oh, that's a good way to get somebody else to realize it who hasn't seen the original, you know, doesn't know the original story. So I'm happy that you kind of 
happy that you got that. But no, like figuring out that Bertilak and the Green Knight were the same person is like impossible mm-hmm. without having that background context. Yeah, that I wouldn't had I think I just thought it was just some knight guy who just some magical dude. Yeah. Or I mean like I figured it was some magical test from the bomb or Morgan Le Fay, but like I didn't know if it was just some magical person or, you know, a dude who got turned into a magical person. So Yeah, and honestly like Bertilak, um, in the movie, he shows up at like such a short period of time that you can't really like figure it out either. Yeah. Yeah. You know. You saw more um, of his wife than the yeah. Bertilak himself. Yeah. And in the book it was pretty even. Mm, okay. So yeah. That's the book. Took me like ten minutes to explain it, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. That's a lot to explain. It's long. That's it's a lot long. to digest. Yeah. Yeah. So something else in the historical context that's important to talk about is the genetic and family factor, right, of Arthur and Gawain being related. It's somewhat touched on in the movie, you know, when it's hinted that Gawain will be king after Arthur, which is true. But the original poem makes a point to say that Gawain is Arthur's sister son. Now, somebody here <coughs> Oops. hasn't seen the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings movies. But a lot of you guys have. Yeah. But a lot of you guys have, so you'll understand. Remember when Aragorn calls Kili and Feely his sister sons? That's important because they would inherit the kingdom under the mountain. Anyway, back to Gawain. Sister sons are important because in historical and and or fantasy literature, in this case, it's both of those. Because science doesn't allow for paternity tests. So if you know where the mom comes from, then, you know, two plus two equals four family lineages ensured the right person inherited the right thing and sir Gawain and the green knight people knew that Gawain came from arthur's sister so no matter who the father was right just in case he was still connected to the monarchy in an irrefutable way you know he was the heir nobody could argue otherwise at the time when i first read this somebody else pointed out to me you know that that was so important because it didn't matter who the dad was Gawain was still connected to arthur by his mom right by the sister they're like huh interesting that makes so much sense because this is something we think about uh-huh. right yeah the 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 poem doesn't really delve into oh my gosh i'm the heir of king arthur's glorious kingdom and <laughs> reputation it doesn't touch on that at all and the movie does for like two seconds but anyway i figured that was kind of important and i'll drip feed historical context as we go Uh. Because to talk about it all at once would just be too much. (laughs) And I know so much about this period that we just, I need to pace myself. I'm here for it. That is interesting. I I didn't know that. I'm not an English major or good at history. So (laughs) So there was, there was this, um, there's this thing in there. See, it's, it's, it's the star. I'm going to mess up what it's called because it's either a (laughs) pentangle or a pentacle. And I don't think it's pentangle. Second one. Okay, cool. Pentacle. Pentacle. What what's up with that? What is that? <laughs> yeah, so some nods to the book that were in the movie. One of those was the pentacle design. It's basically a five-pointed star, like any star. Um, and it's inside a circle, but it's done 3D, so each line goes over or under the other. There's no end or beginning to the star, right? It symbolizes unity, combination of five spiritual, social, and moral qualities. That's an important quote. Um, by the way, all this information on the pentacle is coming from an article called The Significance of the Pentacle Symbolism in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Now, without getting into the vast history and other contexts for each of the original Old English words used, because I'm pretty sure each of the, these words is in the poem, 
Um, I'm just going to tell you guys what all the five points means. And there could be synonyms for these words, whatever, right? There's a pretty big stress put upon in the original that what the pentacle means is exactly who Gawain is, right? So all of these things that the pentacle symbolizes, that's who Gawain is. And that's his whole character that we see develop, get strengthened over different qualities. Different qualities are tested throughout the whole thing, right? So the five virtues are also the virtues of knighthood, right? There's one, piety, chastity, courtesy, loyalty, which is synonymous with like friendship, fellowship, so on and so forth, and generosity, right? Some of these might be self-explanatory, but let's just take a second for all of them. All of these are super tied to the Virgin Mary, so that's important. Hi, Catholics. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more <laughs> Sorry. We'll talk a little bit more later on how heavily religion inspired the culture of the time because it was like a big thing, right? So chastity uh, basically showed honor and grace, right? Not just to others, but to God. Think of how nuns and priests are abstinent to devote their lives to the church. Um, generosity and piety are right there with it. But courtesy and loyalty are important tonight specifically because each of them had to pledge loyalty to a lord. They owed military service to them, for example, for one. But because of that elevated position in society that it gave them, they had, you know, they had a place, they had a position, basically money, land, whatever, to do favors. They could be very generous. They could go on journeys or go to battle, basically for other people. And so it was a big deal that knights basically had to be pious and chaste and courty, courtesy, <laughs> courtesy. And they had to be loyal, they had to be generous, like, all of these things. And so that was basically called the Chivalric Code. And let's be real here. The Chivalric Code was more of, like, an idealistic thing to live up to. Mm. It wasn't like everybody was actually doing this. So depending on who you were, what part of the country of any given country you looked at in Europe, any, like, in this time period, you could find a vast variety of people who actually followed these to the t right and every human is imperfect so i'm sure there were even some great people at this who were failing every once in a while but on the whole that's what knights did and the pentacle is a symbol of all of that and if you know what the symbol means every time you look at it you're like oh this is what they're trying to tell us ah yeah that was so at least in the movie the pentacle was on the the floor, like in the stone of the, the yeah. courtroom. Um, and then Arthur's necklace, which so actually the 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 floor of the court, it's it gets covered in moss when the Green Knight like puts his axe down and there's blood and all that stuff. Actually the blood was like going through all of the yes. the, the all little, the different ridges. Yeah, that was actually a very that was a very neat shot. I, I enjoyed that a lot. So it was those were it was there at least. It was in those two. I don't know if it was anywhere else. But those were the big yeah, ones. Yeah, in the movie, I'm not sure. Cause I, as in that scene, because Arthur's necklace and the court, that's in the same scene. And so after that, I don't think I noticed it again, but I wasn't paying super close attention to it. Mm. But it could have been in other places, like really subtle. But yeah. that was like the biggest thing. Because if you picture the round table, right, the Arthur's Knights and the round table, the round table was very literal because it meant that no one was above or beneath the other. Because when you have a rectangular table, if you're at the head of the table, you're the most important because you're the host. And then people who are closest to you are more important. People who are at the other end are the least important. Oh. Because they're at the end of the table. And that goes, like, way back. Like, 
way, way back. There's scriptures in the Bible about being at the head of the table or being at the foot of the table because you're accepting humility. So that goes way back. Um, But it was especially prevalent here because Arthur's stress upon all these knights were that, you know, none of us are better than the other. We're all doing the same thing. In the movie, him and Guinevere have their own little thrones, but other people are at curved tables. They're not like just straight rectangles. And so this court, remember, this is Christmas time when the Green Knight shows up. So they're all partying. They're all having a great time. The original poem puts a big stress on there being enough food for everyone, like overflowing food. And so this physical round table, the stone that was visible in the middle of it where the Green Knight walks into, that's where the pentacle was in the movie. Oh. And so I was like, oh my gosh, this is genius. (laughs) What? And so I'm not sure if that was done on purpose with the knowledge of the round table and where they wanted to put that symbol, Mm-hmm. But I liked that the symbol was there and literally around Arthur's neck. Yeah. So that was super fun. Yeah. So what about like just, I mean, it's called the Green Knight. There's so much green. There's the Green Knight, the Green Sash, the trees for Pete's sakes. Like, what's the significance of all the green? Like, you know, it might be my favorite color, but like there's got to be some <laughs> other difference or significance to it. Yeah. I mean, it's my second favorite color. So I'm in the same in the same party as you. Um, the movie makes pretty clear that the green is magical, right? Because the green knight is magical. But it doesn't tell us that in the time period, magic also equals evil. Mm. And so, and that's something that I wish, you know, was more stressed upon because everything was a very Christianized society. So the only accepted supernatural influence was like from angels or saints. Whether they were living or dead, it didn't really matter. But like to have something so magical like so prevalent in you know the plot was like oh that's bad like stay away from that you know the green knight's coming into their christmas celebration he's very magical also he's very very large his horse is like giant and he's big enough to get on the horse and like master it and he's got this giant axe right that he hands off to Gwen. so this guy's scary and it's not just, like, paint, right? Like, he is physically green everywhere. Um, there's a big stress also that green has a lot to do with nature. And mm-hmm. so that nature has a lot to do with life and death and, like, the cycles of life and death. And so putting that in a magic lens almost gives us more more context, I yeah. guess. But. Gotcha. And I thought this part was kind of funny. But so when Arthur just told Gwen, Gwen, Gwen that remember it's only a game like you know hey your life may be on the line but it's only a game that's kind that's mm, it's a little silly of him it's a little weird well Mm -hmm. let me tell you why it's not weird arthur was playing the smarter game he says in the book basically it's like a little side remark but it's in there that he should be careful to strike once and make it count so that the deal can be blown in return meaning that if gawain kills the green knight the knight won't be able to return the blow in the same way, right? Mm. Obviously backfires because of magic, and Gawain makes the deal, so he has to follow through. But um, Arthur was basically just like, uh, be careful, strike once and make it count. And so in the movie, you know, remember, it is only a game. It's kind of just like, hmm, I see what you did there. <laughs> kind of a good moment. Um, yeah. And, like, the reputation and following through so that he wouldn't, you know, bring everybody else down... That was so important because of what people said. 
right? Stories were exchanged orally before they were written down. Deals were made with verbal agreements. Reputations were spread by word of mouth. So it was really important that Gawain follow through because if people said bad things about you, your worth was, like, tanked. And so, I mean, basically, Gawain had to follow through or else, you know, if somebody said something bad about them, it was going <laughs> to... Reputation, down, going to tank. And there's this quote from the book that I wanted to read because... The Green Knight's trying to get someone to agree to the game, right? Just to prepare everybody, he's really dramatic, and it's awesome. So, <laughs> here's this moment. What? Is this Arthur's house? Said the hero then. That is famous through so many realms. Where is now your pride and your conquests, your fierceness, and your wrath, and your great words? Now is the revel and the renown of the round table overcome by the word of a single man. For all who tremble for dread without a blow show. Right, so they they had to respond. Yeah, you know he actually, was he was he was taunting them. He was like, "Listen, all of you who you know what this is Arthur's house. Who's you know all of these conquests? You're so fierce and all this stuff, and now you're just speechless because you're all trembling when I haven't even done anything yet." Mm-hmm. And so Arthur and the knights couldn't let them insult him like that. So that was you know yeah, understandable. that was a big thing. Yeah, for real. So another fun moment that they nodded to, nodded to the book. Yeah. So then there was this, um, there was this other lady in the film, Winifred. Um, yeah. And she, there was a, there was a whole scene with her when Gwen was like on his travels towards the night, and like there was some cabin in the woods, and she was out there, and he was being nighty, and you know, basically asking how she was <laughs> doing and all that stuff, and. She, it was, it was a little, it was a little odd, and she asked this question of, like, why would you ask me that? Um, when he was asking about to, uh, you can explain the head thing if you'd like, but when he, she asked him for a favor, and then he asked for one in return, and she was like, why would you ask me that? And it was, it was a little odd. Basically, she told him that she had been decapitated, and her head was at the bottom of the river, or the stream, Mm -hmm. or whatever, the spring. Not a river, a spring. And um, he's like, wait a second, your head's on your head. And she's like, no, it's not. And he's like, well, what are you, a spirit? And she's like, that doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, she's evading all these questions. And he, like, sort of, like, steps up onto this rock to, like, look into the spring. And he's like, so if I do this, would you, like, what a... And she cuts him off. She's like, why would you ask me that? You know? Um, which, remember, chivalric society, the chivalric code... Gawain was expected to complete this favor without anything in exchange, right? More often than not, this meant chivalry would be rewarded with something, with honor, you know? But he couldn't ask for something in mm. return for doing so many favors. So it was kind of like this this limbo, basically. And he plays the same limbo with um, Lady Bartolak when he has to not insult her, but he can't, like, give in. So it's this weird dynamic yeah. that he has to figure out. And um, so, yeah, and... <laughs> I like that because it not only gave us, even though she wasn't in the book, which goes perfectly onto our next topic, yeah. right? Unique things in the movie and how they differ from the book. Winifred was never in the original. Uh, she's actually a 7th century, if I remember correctly, Welsh, Welsh, <laughs> Welsh <laughs> saint. Uh, and there's still a healing spring and shrine where she was decapitated, supposedly, apparently. I liked that they put her in there, even though it took me a minute to really realize mm-hmm. but it, it also kind of gives us that insight into chivalry code right yeah. it kind of you know lets us glimpse it 
a little bit more. However, uh, there is another change that they made. The movie opens up with this. Um, yeah. He wakes up in a brothel. <laughs> Gawain does. That's mm-hmm. how the movie starts. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I thought that was, that was an interesting start, especially since I didn't know what I was getting into. Yeah, you don't um, have any context for this? Nope. I was like, oh, okay, cool. And actually, probably until you mentioned it right now, I didn't actually realize that it was a brothel. And But, you know, one could put together the pieces eventually. I mean, it but was it, pretty low lighting, yeah. but it was all women, and they were all, like, in various stages of getting ready. <laughs> and one of them was not wearing any clothes. Mm, yeah. So, uh, while, like, she was bathing. So I just put two and two together. <laughs> Yeah, no, that so that's make inaccurate. Sense. Then whatever, but I'm pretty sure he was woke up in a brothel. Yeah, but he Gwen has like a girlfriend, kind of something or other. Um, Essel um, probably didn't start as a girlfriend. <laughs> probably not. But and then she kind of just reappears every once in a while, like throughout the rest of the story, um, until he until he leaves to go, you know, find the Green Knight, and they have a whole bunch of conversations and bunch of stuff which yeah i guess it would really go against the chivalry code that you mentioned that would yep. be super great yeah and like everybody was supposed to be following it like i said so if you know in reality back then and keep in mind arthur never existed but the society at the time did right like this was very real in most of europe who followed this you know <laughs> system and um and so what it really was back then was probably something like this because humanity is fallible and that's just, you know, how the world works. It, yeah, it was interesting to me how they started the movie like that, but also, you know, completely reverting the expectations is what you'd think when you're like, hey, this is going to be about a knight uh, in Arthur's court and then he wakes up like this and you're like, hold on. <laughs> wait, <laughs> wait a second. Another big, big change uh, in the movie. The sash was given to him by his mother. Then it was stolen, right? And then Lady Bertilak gave it back to him and said she made it during a sexually charged intense conversation, mm-hmm. right? The entire castle sequence, also, like, when he gets to Bertilak's place, is so much shorter. It has a lot fewer characters in it, way less screen time than what makes sense for the book's timeline. Right, it felt like they needed the sash for the story, but they desperately wanted to do something different, so they kind of switched up the origins, tried to get it back on track. It was a little <laughs> kind of kind of dicey. Yeah, that was that was a little odd. But so, if it, why was it like these parts so different from the rest of the or like what the original story was? Like, did they add anything to this, or was it just changed for the sake of change? Honestly. Some of it might have been changed for the sake of change, but I think Winifred's involvement kind of gives us two things. One, the additional story of a medieval saint, right, for context lore, which lets us see more into Gawain's character. And two, the earlier dynamic we talked about uh, returns for favors basically ends up resurfacing when Lord Burlak makes the deal with Gawain, right? An eye for an eye, you know? Uh, Burlak is going to bring him whatever he gets out hunting, and Gawain's going to give him whatever he gets in the castle. And also with the knightly code, right, Essel's presence shows us that it was probably an idealized way of life. You know, it brings realism and humanity to Gawain's character, which is important for a movie, you know, because you don't spend as much time with the character as you do in a book. However, however, there was enough sexual content in the movie that, now normally I don't mind that kind of thing, but it, and it, 
it has its place. I'll say that. It has its mm-hmm. place in movies and in books. But what irritates me about adaptations, putting it in there, we'll talk about. But essentially, Essel, it's pretty obvious what her and Gawain are up to. Um, and there's a very sexual moment. <laughs> moment. I, it's a whole scene. Uh, with Lady Bertilac are both put in there. And I think, at least, it's to make the story more understood by a modern lens. Because to this society, there's no reason why Gawain shouldn't indulge in a very human thing like sex. And, like, quote-unquote, staying true to the original in that sense would change the audience pretty drastically. Right? Do I agree with the changes? (laughs) Absolutely not. Not at all, actually. I think the most important part of an adaptation, unless it is very, very clear that the societal and cultural perspective is changing for a purpose, and we know what that purpose is is, you know, the most important thing is keeping the original societal and cultural perspective, Mm -hmm. right? It offers so much into seeing what the story offers, how the author saw things, how the original audience saw things. And to me, it cheapens the effect when that's changed so drastically, you know, especially for a work like this, which is so old and beloved. And, you know, it's one of my favorite stories. The changes, you know, disappointed me, I will say. I think... I don't I don't read a lot of like histor like historical fantasy type of stuff. I think a lot of the more historical adaptations I have are like at like history stuff. So the there yeah. was a um there was a new movie that just came out, Killers of the Flower Moon, which I recently watched and I read I've that book in school. I remember you mentioning that. I did. Yeah, I think I mentioned it on another episode cuz I finally went and saw the movie. And I think it it really it's it's I think it's a little different when it comes to like non-fiction stories that's being turned into a like a quote-unquote more fictional type format that sometimes the like you know the movie directors or the people have to take a little more like our creative license or artistic liberties yeah. to get the point across and that might have been something to get here you know maybe maybe some of the uh, directors thought that not that the story is boring, but maybe they thought it was too boring for a movie screen type of stuff that they had to take some liberty to do that. But I do agree with you. I mean, it changes, it, it, especially depending on how big the changes are. It, it, it can warp the story and what its, you know, original intent was, what its true, like, you know, what it really meant to. I personally, like I mentioned, I watched the adaptation of Killers of the Flower Moon. And I didn't see a lot of issues with it, but I also haven't sat down and, like, thought about it all that much, because it's been a minute since I read the book. But I guarantee there was stuff, like, you know, that they did do in the book and didn't do in the movie that, you know, whether or not it was a huge, a huge change between them, I'm not sure about. But it really can, depending on how big those changes are. Like, little ripples, you know? I mean one little domino and then next thing you know it's an entirely different ending yeah and i think i think that's the case in this movie is that there were little dominoes there were little little things um it started with him waking up in a brothel right it started (laughs) with the girlfriend it started with with essel uh it started with his mother being in the story prevalently and he still lives with her at home it started with her casting this spell and us seeing it, you know, bringing the Green Knight into the story. It started with Arthur, um, for one, Arthur and Guinevere being a lot older than they were in the original book implied them to be. Um, Arthur didn't even try to stand up to the Green Knight because he was too old to do so. It started with <laughs> when Gawain left, um, they brought in like this whole new sequence of events 
that on his journey that was not at all like his original adventure right his original adventure involved physical tangible animal threats um to fight and overcome and then he literally ended up praying and then he found the castle and in the movie he gets um tricked by this kid literally this kid um all of his stuff gets stolen his horse gets stolen which is the worst because his horse is the coolest thing in the book and i wanted this <laughs> horse to be in there the whole time um and i love the horse he's adorable he yeah all of his stuff got stolen he got tied around a tree he had to sit there and basically get himself off his butt and escape and get on his way he meets this fox which is a little weird but then there's context later we will mention it in a few minutes um then while um on this journey the only thing he can find to eat is a mushroom he eats it and it's a bad mushroom mm-hmm. we don't know if it's the deadly kind or the hallucination kind because well actually i think we do know it's the hallucination kind because then he starts seeing things and then there are giant giants literally giant uh women who are topless by the way which there's no context for whatsoever all right um, at least the kid stealing all of his stuff makes sense because then he, like, has to overcome that. But there's no explanation for the giant topless women in the story. Um, then you have him showing up at the castle, and there's no one else in the castle besides Bertilak, his wife, and the old woman. There's nobody there. And the, the that is so, you know, it's so different. I mentioned it a minute ago, but the timeline and pacing difference in the entire castle sequence is super different. We don't get a full three days of routine for the exchanges to develop, right? We don't get uh, to see Bertilak hunt or kill any of the animals. We only see Lady Bertilak and Gawain interact once. And in the book, we get to see him continually refusing her, you know, with social grace and wit and charm. But here, we don't really get that. And so it was... The whole thing was kind of flipped upside down, and that was what kind of puzzled me, because it was a domino effect of change. And then all of a sudden, you're at the end, and you're like, wait a minute, we have 20 minutes left in the movie. How are we going to fit in the last 100 pages of the book? You know? Mm-hmm. It's like that panic moment of like, hold on, I don't There's like There's still so happening. much left. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so I think, I think adding so much more modern sexual context and content you know, was to bring the modern reader into the whole context. But I think they also did that, you know, bringing the modern viewer in so that they might understand more about uh, the plot as a whole, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, because in the sexual encounter with Gawain and Lady Bertilak, um, the Green Sash plays a big part in that. And immediately after that happens, Gawain books it. <laughs> He doesn't stay for the third exchange. I wouldn't either. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, so the book sequence, right? When the deal was made. The deal was made first. First night. Then the morning after, first day, the deer. Then the boar. Then the fox, right? In the movie, Bertilak makes the deal after giving Gawain the deer. And the deer was so brief on the screen that when Bonnie watched the movie, I had to text her and ask her if it was a deer. Because I couldn't remember. Like, I wrote it down. I was like, is that a deer? Or is it not a deer? And I never went back to check because I rented it. 
Um, and you watched it after me. And even looking at it a second time, it, it, it wasn't super clear. I mean, like, it wasn't something obvious, like a cow or something, but it wasn't super clear on what exactly it was. We established that it has antlers, um, and that's it. We, and from what I remember seeing of the body of the deer, it didn't look like a deer. You know, like, with the coloring, with the, with the fur, the hide, it's not fur, but the hide of the deer. Yeah, and so... There's that moment. The only time we see the boar, also, is when it's laying down in the woods, and it's dead. When Gawain books it. He books it out of the castle to find the Green Knight, and he runs into Burdalak. And that's when they do the last exchange. Uh, Burdalak basically shows Gawain a burlap sack with an animal inside. He had caught it in a trap, didn't want to kill it. He opens it, released the animal, and it's the fox that had accompanied Gawain on the whole journey. And in the book, this fox's name is the only one out of the animals that gets a name. His name is Reynard, and he's hilarious, and I love him, because he ends up talking. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that in, like, two seconds. The whole point of Reynard getting hunted and killed in the book was symbolic and pointing to, literally, figuratively and literally, to a trickster finally having his tricks catch up to him, right? The fox, as we mentioned, poster child of trickery, deception, all the stuff, a.k.a. Gawain and the green sash he used to avoid being killed. He snuck it past Bertilak. You know, when Reynard is set free, he follows Gawain and, you know, to go to find the Green Knight. Um, if you remember from the original sequence, when they exchange the last thing, when Bertilak puts the fox in front of Gawain, Gawain just gives him one last kiss and then he goes, right? Yeah. He doesn't tell him about the, the sash. And in here, he also doesn't. In the movie, he doesn't. Um, so when Reynard follows him to go find the Green Knight, they, the fox ends up, ends up talking when they get super close. Right. Out of all of the weird things that happened in this movie, that really creeped me out huh. at first. I was like, why is the fox talking? <laughs> out I of could, everything, that's what listen, you questioned. <laughs> listen, I could deal with a woman casting spells. I could deal with giant topless women. I could deal with mushroom hallucinations. But a talking fox, let's be real. So, I mean, not to mention the knight who picked up his own head. Uh, just off a little the floor. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> just, I mean, but I was aware of the original story, so this one little thing was was, was weird. Then I remember the servant that quote unquote tried to dissuade Gawain from going any further. Um, but they didn't give us that servant. They didn't give us that moment because Gawain basically booked it. He flew away. He in secret because they didn't have that. He they I think gave that role to the fox because the fox was like, you know, you really don't have to. I mean, that's basically what the fox said. Yeah. He said the same thing as a servant, just paraphrase and stuff like that. So, But I wanted it to be super obvious through the fox and through, you know, Gawain not telling the knight about this ash, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted that to be really solid, that, like, moment of us realizing, oh, my goodness, this fox that is, like, super sly and super tricky and whatever, like was caught and he's handing this animal to Gawain and Gawain looks at it knowing perfectly well what it means and decides not to tell him about the sash (laughs) you know that's important and we didn't really get that so yeah I mean moving on to the ending this is where it gets interesting because the two of us have different opinions actually on how it ends Mm -hmm. why don't you tell us 
Tell us what's going on. So since I have only watched the movie, this is my only uh, like base of reference for any of this. But from what I understand of the ending was that, you know, Gwen goes and like does the whole thing. He he does the whole flinchy, all that stuff and all that. And then he there's like this flashback kind of like future forward thing or whatever. That's kind of weird. I'm not going to lie. I thought it was going to be like some nice little sweet thing or whatever. And then it was like, not great. <laughs> um, that like he goes through all this flashback and he just constantly has a sash on him and, you know, going through all these like future scenarios, you know, growing up, having a kid, like, you know, losing the kid, all, all that stuff. And then at the very end of the flashback, he pulls off the sash and then his head pops off. Um, like all presumably that thing. So, so presumably um in the flashback and so would be like representative oh, of yeah, yeah, if yeah. he had te- if he had kept on the the thing and he would have been like you know dead or something but or like realistically dead but fa- i don't know i'm again nothing <laughs> but um then at, like after that little flashback he takes their back to the present with the green knight and he takes off the sash and I don't remember what, like, the dialogue exactly is, but the Green Knight and him talk for a minute afterwards, after he, like, you know, finally admitted and took off the sash and all that stuff. And the the knight, the Green Knight pretty much just, like, does a little, like, finger, finger on the throat kind of, like, drawing line. And it, it's, like, off with your head. And then it kind of just ends. And so I took that as, you know, if, if Gwen had left the sash on, then he would have been, like, I'm going to say lying. It wasn't necessarily lying, but like lying, being a fake, not being honest because he didn't like, you know, say that, you know, hey, this belt is going to protect me from everything bad <laughs> and all that stuff. That if he had done that, he was genuinely going to die just in a future, in, in a future sense. As long as he kept lying or lying to himself, he was going to die eventually. Well, I mean, they're all going to die eventually, but he was going <laughs> to die and not fun. The consequences. But since he did take it off and was like, being like honest and be like hey i have this thing it's protecting me um that the quote-unquote sh- sh- like sh- uh strike that the knight was gonna deal him was just the the like the a the verbal congratulations of being honest and then like the whole finger on the throat thing being like all right that's that's your strike and so i think he lived i think the green knight like <laughs> didn't didn't chop <laughs> off his head and i think Gawain survived so that that's my opinion, but again, I'm only going off the the movie for right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like to be super super clear, Gawain goes in the movie. Gawain goes in front of the Green Knight. He swings once. Gawain flinches, so he doesn't get hit. It happens a second time, and then the Green Knight is like, "Well, I mean," kind of leaves it. Gawain looks over his shoulder and he sees his horse by the stream and we know what happened to the horse but i'm like oh my gosh yeah his horse is back so the sequence quote-unquote starts with gawain escaping the green knight on his horse he gets back to camelot he marries the girlfriend he has a kid something very weird and trippy and disgusting happens with that whole scenario i don't i it doesn't make sense to me so we're not going to talk about it because Mm -hmm. i don't know how to explain it Moral of the story, that person is not in the picture. Eslo's not in the picture anymore. Winifred shows up. They get married. Gawain is aging. Things are happening. His son, Essel's son, um, who looks almost exactly like him, starts growing up. You know, he goes into battle, and Gawain visits the tent that his son is in, wounded. His son ends up dying. He goes back to the castle, 
By the way, he's king now. Like, Arthur's dead and he's Ben King. He goes back to the castle and the opposing force or whatever is starts ambushing it. Um, when the door is close to being knocked down, he takes the sash off his belt. You know, he takes he takes it off and that's when his head slides off. Basically saying that if he had, in fact, been struck while the sash was on and he kept the sash on, that way when he took it off, it would finally lift the protection and his head would come off. Mm -hmm. Essentially, that's what that's talking about. And then as soon as his head slides off, we're snapped back to the present with Gawain looking at the Green Knight. So we know that he technically didn't wait. Like, none of that what just happened actually happened. We kind of see this. We know that Gawain never got up to leave. We know that he saw this whole life ahead of him if he had taken the coward's way out, basically, like escaping the Green Knight. So he decides, you know what, I'm going to stay. But because he saw that future with taking off his sash and his head sliding off, he decides to take off the sash in the present moment so that that can't happen. And then he turns kind of, you know, to prepare. The Green Knight does the little finger slicing moment thing. And then the movie ends. But, like, there's, like, the smile on the Green Knight's face. So I think that because Gawain took off the sash, readied himself again, because he never had the third time. Mm -hmm. He never had the third blow. Um, so he never actually hit him. The Green Knight, I've never actually struck Gawain. And so my theory is that the third time happens after the movie's done. The Green Knight hits him, slices off his head, and that's what happens. And I don't like that, but that's what I think happens. <laughs> also, it's worth noting, because I don't think I really made a, as big of a deal of it earlier as I should have. But the whole reason why Gawain um, went back to Camelot after this whole scenario in the book, feeling humiliated, you know, feeling ashamed of himself, all this stuff, was because he felt like he used you know, trickery, he used magic to get away with it, right? To cheat death. But the reason why everyone else is so accepting of it is because they did trade an eye for an eye again for the fourth time that this kind of trade has happened in the movie, right? The trade of the Green Knight using this magic to enter into their court in the first place to scare them into making this deal and using the magic himself to survive the first blow, mm -hmm. right? Because if the Green Knight didn't have that magic, he, he would not have picked up his head and gotten back on his horse and left. And so everybody else's point when they're trying to comfort Gawain and why they tie the green sash around their belt in solidarity is that the Green Knight used this trickery to survive in the first place. So when Gawain was presented with an opportunity to save his own life, he took it, and essentially, when the Green Knight had cheated to survive, Gawain just dealt it right back at him. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the Green Knight in the book, in the original book, was, you know, hey, we're good. We're good here. You don't have to worry about this. I actually tricked you. Um, we've got all this stuff going on. You're free to go. Yeah. And so in the movie, with the end, not only, like, the nature of the end with the whole future flashback and the very, very pivotal moment changing that Gawain took off the sash at the end, right? That being so different, sure, whatever. If it had ended properly, I would have been happy. But they never gave us the end or a confirmation that Gawain did really survive, at least in my point of view, that it ends up changing the whole 
meaning. It changes the whole theme of the story that you can use trickery, you can use magic to get away with things, but it will catch up to you at some point. And how it catches up to you will determine on your motives and what, you know, how this worked. Because Gawain did this to save his own life in response to the Green Knight using magic against him. Mm-hmm. Right? And also in the books, Gawain never gave in to Lady Bertilak. He never let her do anything other than give him this ash. And so he kept every virtue except the sliver of honesty that's found in, you know, the pious, you know, virtue or loyalty mm-hmm. virtue, whatever you want to put it in. And so I think anyway, I mean, that's my last thing to say is, did they really tell the same story? Hmm. Good question. You know, did they really tell the same story if it ended so differently and it didn't teach us, you know, us being a very loose term, if it didn't teach us that lesson that the original one was trying to tell us, you know? Who knows? I thought it was a decent movie. Um, Like I said, I'm coming in with no frame of reference here. It's not typically my speed of movies, so I won't say it was any masterpiece, but I do think it was very pretty, like, beautifully made, like... Just oh, the, I agree. The movie was gorgeous. So maybe one day I'll go find an Eng- old or a not old English, a modern English translation of this one and be like, and read the reverse. But um, <laughs> it was it was interesting. I'll say that. It was interesting. Yeah, definitely. And like, the movie was gorgeous. Like the visuals. Oh, yeah. Like, it was incredible. Like every sequence I can pretty much picture in my, like, and I only saw it once. So that's saying something. Yeah. Well, I actually saw, like, the first half twice, but that's beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, like, it was just so clear and so... It put us in the right context visually. You know, historically, the castle and, you know, his journey and... Okay, I'm gonna say this loosely, but the costumes for the men... <laughs> the men. That's that's it. That's where that statement ends. Um, Accurate costume ends there, I would just like to say. And that's a pet peeve of mine. So there can be benefits to knowing a lot about a historical period when you watch a historical movie. And we've seen that benefit in the way that I can tell all this context. I can pick this apart. I can see the nods to the book and all the stuff. But it is also a curse because I notice everything that they didn't do. And I notice all of the costume. I wouldn't say blunders because I'm pretty sure they did it on purpose. You know, kind of a thing. But it's a gorgeous movie. It's gorgeous, mm-hmm. and the the soundtrack is just stunning. that was very fun. I liked that too. Soundtrack is stunning, and we mentioned it in the introduction. But this movie was uh, made by A twenty four, and they most recently have done Priscilla, which is a movie about Elvis' uh, right. wife. Actually, um, it's very autobiographical. I think she was heavily involved in it, and. Well, not the movie, but the book that she wrote. Um, they've also done Midsummer with Florence Pugh. And so you think of the stills from those movies, right? You think of the stills from Midsummer and, like, the raw emotion and the visuals and the the, um, the soundtracks, right? Like, you can tell this is an A24 movie, but it's really good. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing that you can tell. Um, actually, now that, I, now that I think about it, there's this one shot. And, you know, honestly, they must just really love this style because it's in both this movie and Midsummer. Oh my gosh, how do I describe this? Because <laughs> you've only seen this movie, you haven't seen Midsummer, so you're not gonna like catch on immediately to what I'm saying. Um, yeah. But for anyone who's seen both, or you've seen more than two A24 movies, 
I do think I have seen more A24 films, though. Maybe not Vincent. Probably. I mean, they're they're pretty an established indie, you know, filmmaking company. Yeah. Um, but um, it's this... I mean, it starts out just like a normal shot. And it has... I think it's mostly landscape. But in um, The Green Knight, it has Gawain and the fox in it. And I think maybe in Midsummer it has uh, the Florence Pugh character in it. And it starts normal, and then it starts rotating until it's upside down. And it gets either closer or farther away to what Mm -hmm. is being filmed while this rotation is happening. It's very slow, both rotation and the going out or in, I can't remember which one, until it ends up fully upside down, which, like, is trippy. Because it does it slowly enough that it feels weird. You know, like, if it just flipped on its own, we could adjust. Yeah. But it's this weird, like, transition moment, um, and then it keeps happening. It keeps moving. The rotation, you know, it's locked in upside down, but then it keeps moving. And it's, like, an uncomfortably long shot. Mm. Um, There's another similar, not with a rotating, but a very similar, very, very long shot um, when Gawain is leaving Camelot. It's, like at least 10 seconds long and it's weird but it it makes sense like he's just riding on his horse he's walking on this path and he's got the yellow cape and he's got the you know the axe the 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 knights on his uh, saddle yeah and he's got the belt wrapped around him that his mother gave him with this little wood thing sewn inside of it that has some spell on it i think and um yeah so just like the visuals on this movie are or it's a well done movie but oh, yeah. as always just because something is well done doesn't mean it's a well done adaptation this is not a bad adaptation by any means but i have to really question the original message of the story with all of the changes that are there that makes sense that makes sense that was that was neat i definitely didn't know a lot of that and well i mean the more you know so i had a lot the of fun with that the more you know right especially about yeah. history and you know oh yeah Something I know so much about, so I'd love to share my weird knowledge. <laughs> Heck yeah. As I so often do. Yeah. But yeah, that was that was fun, and I hope that everyone enjoyed listening, even though this was a more academically inclined uh, style. I mean, this is pretty similar to what we normally do, so it's not too yeah. out there. Um, so I hope that everybody enjoyed it. I hope that my professor enjoyed it, obviously. I would like to get a good grade because who doesn't <laughs> want to get a who wants to get a bad grade? Um, but no, this this was super fun and thank you everyone so much for listening. Our next episode will be in December, if all goes as planned. This will be uh, releasing on the holiday weekend of American Thanksgiving. So if you are American and you're celebrating Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving. Um and the Macy's Day Parade obviously is a as big of a national holiday as Thanksgiving is in my house. <laughs> so I will be watching that um, in the morning. And yeah, so happy holiday season. We are creeping into Christmas, which is my favorite holiday. We will have a Christmas-related episode uh, later on this month. So I'm excited. And we're at the end of season one almost. We should have yeah. 20 more episodes. episodes. That's crazy. Yeah. That is crazy. But it's been so much fun, and we're definitely going to continue with this podcast because we love doing it. We know you guys love doing it. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. You guys should totally go watch the movie. Yeah. Let us well, know what you Well, you think. should read the book, first of all. The book um, and the movie. 
I think you should totally read the book first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm a little biased. But the movie is lovely. It's on Amazon Prime for rent or purchase. Not sponsored, unfortunately. Mm, that's okay. But, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys, as always, for listening. And we'll see you around. See you in the next one. Bye. <laughs>